Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Um, if you would, please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the most famous and familiar passages in all of the Bible. Um, a week ago, a little over a week ago, I was traveling on the western side of the state uh, visiting some family, and I listened to a podcast that, that gives news updates on the hour, and it's a national podcast, and I was listening to this national podcast, and it said, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I thought, whoa, what's happening in Green Bay, Wisconsin, that it makes national news? I thought maybe, you know, add something to do with the Packers, possibly, um, but it didn't, and so I kind of dug up the story for, for this sermon, but, but this is what it said uh, in the usnews.com, the AP Press. The headline says, Green Bay officials threatened after passing mask mandate. So Green Bay police are investigating threats made against city officials over a new mandate requiring face coverings in public buildings because of the coronavirus. This was obviously before Governor Evers gave his, uh, I want to say edict, that's not the right word, but Alderman Randy Scannell, who first proposed the mask ordinance, says one email called him a traitor who must die. And the sender said that they would make sure that he died. Two days ago, uh, I got a video message from my friend in, in England. His name's Stephen Jones. Some of you know him. He's a missionary there. And he said, hey, how are things going in America? He goes, from what I hear, it sounds like a dumpster fire. <laughs> he said, it doesn't sound good. Talking to one of my friends, he said he's a pastor there. Uh, he's right on the verge of calling it quits. I watched... Um, I've heard stories over this past week of, of people that are feeling uncared for, unloved for in the church, whether they be new visitors or people who are members, but during the coronavirus time just did not have a lot of people reach out to them. And so this is a time where things are very tense. People are, are wound really tight, and there's a lot of frustration and anger and division in our country, um, but even in the church. And so the question is, what do we do with all this? How are we supposed to respond? How can we dump water on this dumpster fire? And that's what Paul tells us today in God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, I'm actually going to back up one verse and start in verse 31 of chapter 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, 
but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, we need your love. We need your love right now as we go through your word to show us where we don't love like you call us to, God. And not only to show us, but teach us how can we love in a way that is really not even within our own strength. And so God, pray that you would grow us as a church to love one another and to love those that you have put around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm guessing for some of you, as you hear that 1 Corinthians 13 passage read, uh, you kind of want to turn around and look at the door and see if the bride is standing there waiting to come in, right? This is a passage that is almost always read at weddings. And it's okay that it's read at weddings. I mean, these are characteristics of love that should be demonstrated between a husband and wife. But the original intent of this had nothing to do with weddings at all. It had to do with a local church. And so it has to do with our local church on how we should love and care for one another. And it's so particularly timely in this time when things seem chaotic and out of order and disjointed and frustrating and dividing. Knowing how to love is something that we need to understand, I think particularly at this moment. And so God's word is so timely for us as we think about what does it look like to be part of God's agents of redemption in the world to put out the dumpster fire that's going on around us. And so what does God's word teach us about love? Well, first, we learn the centrality of love. If you remember over the past two weeks, uh, as we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it was talking about spiritual 
gifts, even though that was not the focus of the chapter, but it talked a lot about spiritual gifts. And Paul addresses the spiritual gifts and says, God has given these to you for the sake of the body, to love the body, to love and care for one another. But sadly, what happened in Corinth and what can happen in our church today is these spiritual gifts were taken for personal gain instead of the gain of the church as a whole. And so people were using these to elevate themselves in the view of other people. But Paul writes here to counteract that and to tell them that the gifts are not the main thing. Verse 31 again of chapter 12, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clangy cymbal. As Paul talks about the, the tongues of men, he could simply be talking about a really good orator, a teacher, a preacher. He could also be talking about someone who speaks in their own language, the gospel, and someone in another language hears it in their language. He could be talking about that in the tongues of, angel, in, of men. And the tongues of angels, probably a, a language that seem, would seem Russian to us, just something we wouldn't understand. Um, but this is, these, are, these are fascinating gifts. Uh, gifts that people marvel at, gifts that people appreciate, their oratory gifts. And so I think even in, 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 in our own context, I think it applies to people who teach, people who lead well, people who can speak well or write well. And yet what Paul's emphasis is here is as impressive as your gifts might be to other people, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is not how great your gift is, but your heart behind the gift. Do you do it with love? Love for God and love for God's people. If you speak with your mouth without love in your heart, it's just white noise from God's perspective. This would have been shocking to the Corinthians who adored who adored public speakers that were very gifted. I mean, they were like rock stars, as we told you in the past. But Paul says, listen, that's not the most important thing. That's not the most wonderful thing. The most wonderful thing is a heart of love. Verse two, he says, and if I have prophetic powers, again, speaking, foretelling or foretelling, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if you can understand how the Trinity works out completely and explain it to everybody, if you have that wonderful knowledge, it says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, if you can say to the mountain, jump into the sea, and it goes. But have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, a gift of generosity, if I deliver up my body to be burned, a gift of faith, but have not love, I gain nothing. Depending how you segment out this passage, there are five-ish gifts in this passage, spiritual gifts, and they're pretty spectacular gifts. Again, gifts that people would look at and say, oh, wow, look at what that person can do. And yet Paul says after all of them, he says in kind of succeeding order, he lists out some, he says, if you do these amazing gifts without love, he says, you say nothing, you are nothing, and you gain nothing. And he says this because heart is so central to our service. Love is so central that without love, our spiritual gifts are meaningless. One author put it this way. He said, five minus one equals zero. Five spiritual gifts minus love 
equals zero. That's what this passage is saying. I've shared this story before, and I'm not sure how long ago, so forgive me if you've heard it. But I remember several years ago, um, I was taking my wife on a date night. I scheduled a date night. I found a babysitter. I got everything set up, ready to go. We got in the car, and I was kind of in a grumpy mood, but I was trying to be a good husband, so I did the things I was supposed to do. I talked to her. We get to the restaurant, open the door for her. We sit down. We're chit-chatting. Things are going okay, although I'm a little bit in a grumpy mood. And we're sitting there looking at the menus, and the waiter comes up to the table next to us. And he says to the table, how is your food? And the woman there says, well, it's okay. This soup is really salty. And he responded, yeah, it gets that way after a couple of days. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh boy, what restaurant did we come to? And then they bring, in, they bring out the rolls and they bring out hard rolls, which I don't understand why people like hard rolls personally, but these were super hard. Like you could have played baseball with them and the sun was shining in and I had a headache and I was frumpy. And so you can imagine what a wonderful date this was for my wife to be around this really grumpy husband. And so finally, she looks at me with tears in her eyes and she says, I just want to be cherished. I just want to be cherished. You see, I had done all the right things as a husband, set up the date night, got the babysitter, held open doors, made small talk, let her choose the restaurant. I did the things I was supposed to do, but I did not do the one central thing. I didn't love my wife. Love is central to our gifting, to acting out our gifting to do what God has called us to do with love. Now, I know there's a temptation to say, well, I'm not gonna serve unless I can do it in love, but that's not what this is talking about here. You still send your kids to school even if they don't love it, right? You serve and pray, Lord, help my heart to love your church. Help my heart to love you. Five minus one equals zero. Love is central to all that we say and think and do, especially in the church. And so that's the centrality of love. Paul then moves on to the character of love. What are characteristics of this love that is so central? And what is so hard about this list, I mean, there's a couple of difficult things. One thing is that most of these characteristics are internal. They're invisible qualities that, that maybe can't be seen by the, on the outside, except for those who probably know you best. And so it's more a review of our internal motivations. But the other hard thing about this is, well, I'll just say for myself, this is a very convicting passage. I mean, prior to this week, I would have said, you know, I'm a pretty loving person. Um, but as you go through this list, I'm like, fail, 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 fail. And so as I walk through it, um, I just kind of want to confess my own sin as we go, because because I think it's healthy to do that, but also it might help you identify with some areas maybe that you're weak and need to grow in love. So let's look at the characteristics of love as Paul lists them out. First off, he says, love is patient and kind, okay? Patient actually means to long suffer, which I thought was a very provocative way of thinking about it. That's long suffering when you're being patient. But then I realized it is exactly that. You're suffering something when you are being patient, when you are waiting on the Lord or waiting on another person. I know for me at home, you know, when dinner comes out of the oven and it's hot and ready, I grab my food and I sit down and then I wait and I wait and I wait and I wait for my kids to get their food and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm trying to be patient and not get frustrated, but it's very hard for me to do because I'm long suffering, even though it's like 60 seconds. My food's getting cold. 
or when I'm driving and I have a place to get to. And it seems like the person in front of me is a brand new driver every time. It's hard to be patient. He also says love is kind, to be warm towards others, tender-hearted towards others. You know, I don't know about you, but I find this easier to do with strangers than I do with the people that I know best. It's easy when I meet someone new to be warm and winsome towards them. But when I have someone in my family that responds a certain way, it's easy to not be kind. Or or people that I just know very well, whether it be elders or people in my community group, it's easy to not respond with kindness. As has been said many times, it's easy to love humanity. It's really hard to love humans. It's hard to love people that you get to know so tightly that you see their flaws and their annoying habits. But God calls us to love and to be kind to them. Paul continues, he says, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. To envy is to desire something earnestly, to burn with zeal for something, to say, I need what they have. Or I wish my life was like their life. The reality is people in the church will always have better stuff than you. Someone will have better stuff than you. Inevitably, they'll have a better car or a better house or better toys. Or their situation will be better than yours, right? They'll have a better marriage or a better family life or a better occupation. From your vantage point, they'll have better health. There's always someone who's going to have something better than you. And our temptation is to say, I hate that they have it. I wish I had it which causes division in the church. But what we're supposed to do is to celebrate that God has given that as a gift to them because God in his wisdom said, this is right and this is good. And so to not envy is to celebrate what God has given to others in our heart, not just with our words. He also says, love does not boast. Again, I think it's, it's, it's important to qualify this a little bit or to, I think sometimes Christians think, you know, to celebrate things in life, achievements or cool things that happen is boasting. Um, and it's true that, 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 that boasting can sound a lot like celebrating, but there's a heart difference. And the difference is when we celebrate something, what we're doing is we're celebrating a great gift that God has given to us. And we're celebrating God in the midst of it. But when we boast, that comes out of our insecurity in which we try to lift ourselves up before the eyes of others. I mean, I even see this in my past week where I slide certain accomplishments into conversations to make other people think I'm cool. It's boasting. Paul continues and says, love is not arrogant, literally to puff up or to inflate. Uh, it's used seven times, this word for, for arrogance is used seven times in the New Testament. Six of the seven are here in 1 Corinthians. And one of the unique things about the Corinthians church is they were an extremely gifted church. And that's where the temptation of arrogance comes in. When we are gifted in a certain area and we say, everyone should be as gifted as I am in this area. And so you may have the gift of discernment. And there's a temptation if someone comes along that does not have the gift of discernment, who is making unwise decisions to say, what a fool. Like they should be as discerning as I am. And so we can be arrogant about our gifts instead of seeing our gift as a privilege to serve those in the church and to love those in the church. And he says, love is not rude. I think it's very similar to being kind, but not being offensive to other people. I think one way that we are rude uh, is that when we are, uh, instead of slow to speak and quick to listen, we are quick to speak and we don't ever listen. (laughs) We dominate conversations talking about us 
talking about what we believe and what we think about certain controversial topics, but we don't want to listen to what others have to say. Paul continues. He says, love does not insist on its own way. Literally, it doesn't seek its own. We've heard that terminology. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get my own, right? This says no, that we seek the interests of others. Philippians 2 puts it so well. It says, let each one not look to only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love is not irritable. It's not easily provoked. It's not reactionary. I, I, again, I've been just dwelling on this list all week, and so things come to my mind so quickly, but I know that they're, I'm so quick to just bark at my kids. Like if, if they do something, I mean, spilled milk, maybe you can say, but like, stop it. Like, you know, just, just jump on them like that. But we're supposed to respond with, with love and in a measured and gracious way. Love is not resentful, he says. Is there anyone that you want evil towards? Is there anyone that you want to be hurt as they hurt you? That's resentfulness. Verse six, he continues, he says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I think this statement is so important to set boundaries on what we might think love is. A lot of times we think love is just simply approving and celebrating anyone and everyone, whatever they decide to do, right? And yet here he says, but we don't rejoice at wrongdoing, but we rejoice with the truth. I have a good friend who um, doesn't go to church here. He doesn't live in our city or anything like that. And, uh, and he has a brother um, who was going to bring his girlfriend to the family reunion, the hard part about that is that his brother was still married to another woman. And so the parents who are in the church say, you know, sure, come, bring. We want to love her and care for her. And my friend said, to, he called his brother. He's like, listen, brother, I love you. I love your wife. I even love your girlfriend. I love you, but this is not right. I can't endorse this. I cannot celebrate it. I can't pretend as if nothing is wrong. He would not rejoice in a lie. He would not rejoice in wrongdoing. He wanted to rejoice in the truth. Sometimes the most unloving thing you can do is avoid another person, avoid a difficult conversation. And the most loving thing you can do is have hard conversations that can create distance. But it happens if we don't rejoice in the truth. Verse seven, love bears all things. That means bears many offenses. Not that we would enable a person. If someone is squandering money, we don't just keep giving them money, but we bear with them. We stay with them. We continue with them. Love believes all things and hopes all things. I think this is one, these are ones that are misunderstood um, it doesn't mean, especially in the context of wedding vows, to believe all things and hope all things. It's kind of like, hey, let your husband or wife chase their dreams and believe their dreams will come true, right? So like, you know, believe I'll become a country music star or an NFL quarterback. Like you don't have to believe those things or even hope those things. You probably hope it doesn't happen. But what it means is that we would believe what the scripture says about that other person. And so when somebody says something that is hurtful or offensive or that we disagree with, what we believe is that they are a person made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect and yes, love. 
as an image bearer of God. And if they are a believer, then we believe they are a son and daughter of the king, precious and cherished by the Lord, and we should treat them as such. And so it believes all things and hopes all things that redemption is possible, that restoration is possible. And finally, it endures all things. Again, we have this notion of love to be an emotion that comes and goes, right? And and love certainly is emotional. I'm not saying it's not, but love is commitment. That's how God loves us is he commits himself to us. It's a commitment to another person even when the marriage is rocky. It's a commitment to a child even when they act in disrespectful ways and try to push you away. It is a commitment to another brother or sister in Christ, even if they have offended you, to go to them and to talk to them one-on-one. It endures all things. These are the characteristics of love that Paul lists out here. Characteristics that we should all seek to emulate, but also many times fall short to do so. You know, something very interesting about this passage, verses four through seven, is that Paul actually personifies love, which means he makes it kind of like a person or he treats love like a person. If you notice, he doesn't say things like, it is loving to be patient. He says, love is patient. Why does he personify love? I mean, that's so interesting. I think we've gotten used to it because we've heard this so much, but why does he personify love? because love is a person. Jesus tells us, he says, beloved, love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And he says, anyone who does not love does not know God. And he says this, because God is love. Paul doesn't just say love comes from God and that God loves you. Both of those are true, but he says that God is love. And we know this because love came into this world full of hatred and did nothing but love. In the form of Jesus Christ, he came and he loved his enemy and he was kind and he did not discard people. He was gentle with them. He was caring towards them. He was not arrogant, but he was humble. He laid down his throne above to come into this world to be a servant to angry and mean and hateful people. So much so that he even went to the cross where he bore our sins and endured the wrath of God on our behalf so that we, by faith, can have a firm hope that we now and forevermore will be recipients of the lavish love of God. In John 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And yet Jesus took us who was enemies, made us his friend and laid down his life for us. Christians, the love that God calls us to is not the love that is in the world, okay? You know, it is easy to love those who love you, isn't it? It's easy to love your precious, cute little children. But this is calling us to a gospel love, an agape love, an unconditional forever love. You know, when I do pre-marriage counseling, one of the first questions I will ask the couple is, why do you want to get married to this person? And they will say something about how lovely the other person is. You know, they're, they're nice, they're warm, they love Jesus. You know, I love them, they're awesome. All of these things, they say all these wonderful things about the other person, which I'm glad that they do. 
But I've never had anybody come and say, well, I want to marry this person because they're selfish, because they're rude, because they're self-seeking, because they are arrogant. I've never had anyone say, I'm glad that I haven't. I probably wouldn't marry them. But this is how God loved us. God loved us when we were selfish and rude and self-seeking and arrogant. And God still loves us when we are selfish and rude and arrogant and self-seeking. And God will always love us when we are selfish and rude and arrogant and self-seeking. Do you see how this love is not the same love that the world has to offer? It is gospel love. Love that is out of this world. Love that is not difficult for us. It is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit teaching us God's unconditional, sacrificial, unbelievable love for us in Christ Jesus. And so just to recap, we saw the centrality of love. It must cover everything we say and think and do. The characteristics of love is that it's to be an unconditional, divine love that is out of this world. And finally, the continuation of love. Verse 8 says, love never ends. Some of your Bibles probably translates it, love never fails. That's actually the title of the sermon series. If you look on the front of the bulletin, love never fails. It's a Greek word that's kind of hard to pronounce, ekpito. Um, and it literally means that love never falls down. It doesn't perish. It never goes away. It never ends. It never fails. This is such an important message in a time that is so filled with bitterness and anger and division and hatred. Love never fails. We are so quick to respond to hatred with hatred, aren't we? I know I am. When someone rants on Facebook, I want to rant right back. But what we are told is we are called to a higher standard. We are called not to rant, but to love. Because love never fails. He go, and it never fades away. He goes on, he says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. These are all spiritual gifts that the Corinthians had. He said, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, what does it mean that when the perfect comes and that all the partial, all of the, 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 those spiritual gifts will pass away? Well, there are dividing views on this, but just to kind of, summarize it because I'm going long. There are cessationists, which we talked about a few weeks ago, who would say these charismatic gifts are now gone from the church. And they would say that the perfect came with the closing of the canon. When the last apostle died, the writing of scripture was over. It was completed at that time. And so that's when those spiritual gifts, uh, charismatic gifts went away. Uh, others, which I would fall more in this camp, is I think the coming of the perfect is when Christ comes again. And so while I think there's an over-fascination uh, for charismatic gifts, I, personally, I don't think that they're all gone away. I think especially in certain areas where there's not Scripture prevalent in Christians, God still uses these things in some exceptional ways. But the, but the important thing to notice here, whether you are, whichever view you hold, is the important thing that Paul's trying to communicate is that love never ends. It never stops. There's no shelf life to the love of God. Thank God for that. Verse 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. This is why I think the, the perfect coming is later because we'll see face to face. 
Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so for me, that's why I think this perfect that's coming, it's the perfect Savior coming to make the world perfect again, when we will see him face to face. And we will know as we are fully known. All right, let's go back to verse 11. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Again, Paul is elevating a way of love that is different than worldly love. Childish love, although not all children love this way, but childish love is a selfish love. I mean, if you take 10 kids with eight popsicles and you leave the room, see how quickly someone comes out crying. It's nice. This is how children love each other, right? And, and they, this is how I loved people when I was a kid and how I do sometimes even now. They... They call each other names, right? Like, like dummy or stupid or whatever. That's childish. It's childish to, to call people names because what it does is, I've seen this, they'll say, oh, that person is a monster. And the reason why they say that is because then anything that person does that comes out of them can be deemed as evil. And they don't have to discern the redemptive parts of that person. They just says everything they do is bad because they're a monster, right? Name calling is childish. Paul continues and he says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He learned to love as Christ has loved him. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We'll see Jesus face to face when the perfect comes. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. For Paul to say faith and hope are not as important. Love is a big deal. He talked a lot about faith when he went around preaching the gospel that we're saved by faith and the hope of heaven that we have in Christ. And yet he says the greatest of these is love. Pastor Sandy Wilson tells a story about the power of the gospel that really just struck me this week. And he tells a story about how in the 1950s, uh, Kenya went through a major revival. Uh, many in the country came to faith in Christ, even in the countries surrounding them. And within Kenya, there was a tribe known as, uh, well, I don't know the tribe, but there was a rebellion called the Mau Mau Rebellion, okay? And it was from one of the Kenyan tribes. And what the Mau Mau's had decided to do is that they were going to kill all of the British overseers that had come into their area. And they took a vow with one another. They said, we will not stop until all of them have either left or died. And so we're going to kill them. The problem with this plan is that there were some in the Mau Mau, some in this tribe, I forget the tribe name, but, but some in this tribe who had become Christians. And they refused to be part of murdering the British. They, they, they made it very clear that they loved their tribal men very much, but they said, we also love the British. We, we love the enemy, if you'll have it. And so the, this tribe went around and at night, would, would, would kidnap Christians and would slaughter them and butcher them to pieces. And there's a story of, uh, of one night when, this, when these men went into the house of a Christian family that would not comply, that would not vow themselves to kill British people. And, and, and these murderers came in and, and the Christian uh, family came out and, and the father started pleading with them. But he wasn't pleading for his own life. He was pleading for their lives, the lives of the executioners. He shared with them the good news of Jesus and he pleaded for them to trust in Jesus for their salvation, to know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. 
And so after he shared the good news of Jesus with his captors who were about to slaughter him and called for them to trust in Christ for their salvation, the men there slaughtered the family. But then one of those men who slaughtered the family said this. He says, I will never forget that face as long as I lived. I resolved I was going to find out who that man's God was. And so he started searching and looking to see who this, man God, who this man's God was. And at the end of his search, he found Jesus Christ, was transformed by the gospel and became one of the greatest evangelists in all of Kenya. And all of this happened because this man believed that love never fails, that love never ends, even at the cost of his own life. As it was for our Savior, he believed that love would win the day. Christians, we are called to a divine love that is sacrificial, unconditional, even to the point of death. Let me end with this. Jesus says in in John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. He's talking to his people. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. How did he love us? Sacrificially, patiently, kindly, not arrogantly or boastfully. And he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, I am, I'm so uh, aware that during this time, many times Christians are not known by their love, but they're known by what they hate. Whatever that might be, maybe a politician, maybe mass or no mass people or whatever it might be, they're known by their hate because that's what is trumpeted loudest. But Christ says they will know you by your love for one another within the church. And so God calls us to love because love never ends. Love never fails. And in the end, love will win the day. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to love those who hate us. Help us to love those who think differently than us or look differently than us or want differently than us or believe differently than us. Lord, help us to love as you have loved us in a supernatural, unconditional, committed love. Help us to love our church family. Help us to love our community. Help us to love our enemy. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.